Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. Yo, what's good? It's Pastor Jay Harris here from The Ville Church. Thank you so much for tuning in to our online sermon this morning. Um, I'm happy to be here to preach with you. We are actually in the middle of a uh, series called Community, where we emphasize the unity and community. And uh, one of the reasons we kind of jumped into this series is because we really wanted to talk about what does it look like to be unified um, in the middle of a season such as the one that we are in, where there is political unrest, there is, I mean, there's division inside of the church um, like we have never seen before. And I hit a pause with that because I think the division has always existed or whatever. We just hitting some topics or whatever that have long needed to be addressed and uh, dealt with concerning racism, nationalism, classism, elitism, all of these different things. Um, and I think ultimately, if we hold to Jesus Christ, it's going to be um, for the glory of God when we when we push through the season. The church has been under attack since um, since the very beginning, and God has showed Himself faithful in the middle of it always forgive me my watch is ringing and whatnot i'm just trying to show off my watch my wife got it to me for me for christmas anyway but the church has always been under attack right um but we know even you throw covid on this or whatever and the alienation um you know being secluded and away from each other and not being able to have community the way we normally would and um i think it just leads us to a place where we really grasp um the importance of it and how importance of community and how significant it is in even in our personal walk um, with with the Lord and and so so many people are struggling so we we pray that this series at the Ville Church that it's going to be encouraging to people and help them with some of the practical and spiritual practices um, they can put in place and also to hear God's word tell them um, um, that He's not surprised about the season that we're in and the different things He's He's told us and so. Long story short, we are going to be in 1 Peter 5, 8 this morning. We're going to be doing 1 Peter 5, 8, and we're going to be going all the way through to verse 11. And um, and so I'm excited to jump into it, right? So our last series that we were hitting on um, when I was preaching this before my sabbatical in the early part of December or the end of November, um, I was talking about how Jesus actually causes community to happen, right? Like when we were actually become believers and follow Jesus, we are grafted into the family of God and he considers us his children. And the Bible specifically says that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That doesn't mean we always get along. It doesn't mean that we are perfect. Just like any normal family or whatever, there's tensions and things that have to be dealt with um, between siblings. There's the same inside the body of Christ, but God calls us to no less um, remember that we are his children, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And instead of fighting uh, to pull um, this truth of, you know, apart from each other or be polarizing in it, but how do we actually um, make this unity happen, right? How do we actually make community happen? So let's read First Peter 5 through 8, right? Peter is actually um, addressing many Christians who are spreaded, um, scattered abroad. Many of them are probably in Rome. And so they are actually experiencing persecution. 
which um, colors his language a lot through the book of Peter. If you if you if you take the context in consideration, he is planning these words. I'm going to read to you in the middle of their struggles. They are not at home. Um, they are not around their tradition. Things are being they 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 are stressed and and being um, being oppressed from many different angles. And so he says in in, in 1 Peter five verse eight, he says, "Be alert." and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is un undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So that's our text for today. So let's look at the first part. We're just going to walk through this. In verse 8, he says, be alert in a sober mind. Let's deal with that part first, right? What is he telling us? He's saying, first of all, what he would be saying to them is in the middle of all of the things that you are going through right now. Be awake. Pay attention. Don't go into nonchalant mode in your walk as a believer. Don't just become indifferent about it but be alert and be sober about what the word of god says the sin that you see happening in the world and how god has called you to move in it be alert and be sober-minded right and then he says your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion look a roaring lion looking for someone to devour so i want you to think about this real quick right he's saying your enemy the devil like so often we say Oh, the enemy and we use it as a cliche phrase sometimes we say it and we and we try to use it to take away personal responsibility for the things that we're doing in our life and and, and where we need to actually you know be letting God um, deal with us convict us sanctify us do that thing that fathers do when they try to keep their children on the on the right path but nevertheless there is a enemy who is against God who is actually working against us all the time that is trying to tempt us to things of the flesh, trying to make God small, whether he's using, you know, you, you, you could be attacked through your kids, your friends, your spouse, your coworkers, strangers, social media, finances, your job, your vehicle, your health, all of these things that could be having an effect on your walk with God, right? The stress that they bring, the anxiety that they bring, right? Um, the, 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 just the anger they may bring or whatever. Right. And so you have these things that are exterior and they push on your spiritual walk, your relationship with, in the way you see Jesus Christ, the way you esteem the word of God. So he's saying, be sober and be alert that the enemy is coming after you. And he says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. Um, John Piper gives an excellent commentary on this because what he talks about the roaring is, is the roaring is actually suffering. It's all these things, the anxiety, the attacks or whatever, but the suffering they cause. Not only just those practical kind of things that have an effect, but also the attack of people because you are a believer, right? People ridiculing you, mocking you. Maybe at family functions, you get played like you're weird because you're a Jesus follower or whatever the case may be or whatever. But he is saying those the enemy is using all of these things to actually roar. This is how he roars, right? Think about this for a minute. If you've been walking with the Lord for quite a while and you've seen people walk away from God, I guarantee you, it usually is tied to suffering in some aspect. 
it's tied to them like if like how many times have you heard people say if god was this then why do i go through this why do people go through this why is this like this right there's this suffering that they're going through and the suffering is now um getting louder than god the devil is is roaring and what does the devil want to do when it says he wants to devour you his end goal is to actually pull you out of the clutches of God or to be a stumbling block that you never, like say God is actually wooing you and you haven't yet actually landed where you've like, God, I give you my life, but God is talking to you. The enemy is like, he's trying to kill that noise because he doesn't want to see that happen. He is headed for an inevitable judgment, right? And he wants to take many of us with him, right? So he wants us to be rooted in rebellion against God. So he roars against us. And one of his key things that he does is he uses suffering. He uses suffering to do it. The devil's lion-like roaring is suffering. It results in suffering, right? And so verse 9 tells us this. It says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. That is, that is the imperative that we get inside of this text in 1 Peter. Resist them, standing firm in the faith. So let me tell you what it says about how do we actually resist them. Because if you just stop right here, you might think, oh, I just need to read the Bible more. And that would actually be good for you to read the word or whatever. It's not a bad thing. It's an it's a, a, a excellent practical practice. And when I encourage you, and if you're not reading the word, I need to pray more. You should be doing that too. God has given these things for us, right, to keep us close to him, to keep his word fresh, which encourages us, invigorates us, and also delivers us truth in light of suffering. It makes the roar not so loud because it's like Satan, I ain't falling for that, that game right there because I realize this word, but he's trying to alienate you, get you away from him so he can whisper in your ear and talk crazy to you, right? But he says, resist them, stand firm in the faith. This is what Peter's telling the, the, the people of God, right? And what I'm telling you right now. And he says, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Resist them, stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So what is Peter doing here, right? He is looking to root us in community. The audience he's talking to, these believers or whatever, that are in the middle of being oppressed and they're scattered different places, he's saying, listen, stand firm, hold strong. I know the enemy is on your neck. I know he's coming at you like crazy. Stand firm because the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering, right? And why is he doing that? Because it will help us resist the devil, right? When we are weak in the knees, it will hold us up, our community, our people, right? They, they will encourage you. They will point you to Jesus. So he's like, don't, don't let the enemy let you feel like you are on your lonesome, right? And these attacks are unique to only you because they're not. For the Bible, Peter, um, excuse me, Paul tells Timothy in the word when he's talking to Timothy, he says, Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Suffering it's synonymous with walking with Christ. Too often we've been sold this gospel in America where like, it's like God is going to bless you and he's going to do this for you and prosperity is just going to flow all around you and everything is going to be easy. That is a lie. Maybe it will be. Maybe things will be easier. 
but in the middle of even your easy, there will be suffering and there will be attacks. Maybe you will flourish, right? God can cause you to flourish. He can cause you to financially flourish. He can cause you to flourish in joy and all kinds of things, but it will not be about money stacked up in your hand. It will be about that you are rooted in Christ Jesus. God doesn't know us nothing. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if God has saved you by his mercy and grace, then he has blessed you with eternal, eternal, immeasurable riches. He has wiped all of your sins away. And he says the promises that are, 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 are there that are eternal, that will be forever, the joy, the overwhelming joy. It says the Bible says that no ear has heard, no eye has seen what the Lord has for his children. The flyest car you can think of is pitiful compared to what God has waiting. The biggest stack of money you could possibly imagine is pitiful to the eternal riches of God. The worship that you can get from mankind, the celebrity of it all, is nothingness compared to the glory of God and the way we are going to, what we are going to experience in his eternal presence. So our richness is in Jesus. Jesus is the prize. He's the prize. And in community, we are encouraged. We are reminded of this. We're reminded that there are others that we can link arms with, right? We're reminded of it. You understand? That's what we're supposed to do. What I want to ask you today, and I want you to consider this, and this isn't to condemn you. This isn't to condemn you. This is, this is to love you. Does you being a child of God, serving God, being loved by God. Does it look like you loving your neighbors? Are you nonchalant about your, your, your brothers and sisters, about the church? I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the living stones that Peter talks about. All of us who are building blocks built on the foundation of Christ who make up the church. Is your rhetoric like, you know, oh, this and that or whatever, this and that. Somebody needs your encouragement. Somebody needs you to not take it lightly. One of the most grievous things I think I deal with as a pastor, and here's the thing, I'm not a superhero by any means. When I say it's grievous to me, I mean it's grievous because I also see it in myself. It's, I, 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 matter of fact, let me say this, I'm calling myself out first. One of the most grievous things I think is seeing people's nonchalantness and how they move and their lack of care sometimes for their neighbor. I look in the crowd sometimes, I look in the audience, I know whose marriage is possibly going to end, who's holding on for dear life, who's struggling with addiction, who's struggling, whose family is broken, who's watching their kids walk off the ledge, who have members, family members dying, who are dealing with tragedy. And my God, do they need somebody to hug them. My God, do they need a phone call to just hear somebody tell them like, Hey, I love you. I see you. Ain't that you got to fix the problem, but it helps for them to know that there's others going through the same kind of things. Others who have experienced some of the things they've gone through and can tell them about how God is faithful despite, how it doesn't seem to make sense, but God is faithful and true. How he's faithful and true. I remember when I was a kid, my first friend that ever got murdered, 
and I came home and it broke my heart into a million pieces. I'll never forget what my mom said because I cried for days. And she said, son, she said, God heals broken hearts too. She said, God can heal a broken heart. And here's the thing. I remember I was mad at her for saying it. I was upset with it. I just didn't want to hear it at the moment. But I'm glad she told me that. I'm glad I understand what she was saying more than I do anything. God, God is ultimately going to fix all of this and he's bigger than all of it. Something I just needed, I, I didn't even know I needed to hear it, but I needed to hear it to grab onto it for the long story. You understand? People are waiting for you. God did not save you for you to just be about yourself. He didn't save you to be nonchalant about the church. He didn't save you to be nonchalant about preaching the gospel. He didn't save you to be nonchalant about encouraging your brothers and sisters and being there for, being there for them. All right? I'm not in my emotions. This is what the word says. You read through the New Testament and look at what it says about loving your neighbor and how much the gospel is focused around the people of God first and foremost. It definitely tells us to love the lost. It tells us to love our enemies. But, man, it is explicit about this call to community. The Old Testament, even the word he gave, the commands he gave to Israel about how to love people, even the foreigner, but loving each other. The commitment to community. You can't read it and miss it. But the enemy's been roaring at us and tries to get us to miss it. And we're not above it. That's why this word is so significant. When you drift off in the wonderland, it matters. When you are nonchalant and different about being a follower of Jesus, it affects your neighbor. It affects your community. What it actually does is that it turns up the roar of the lion. So ask yourself about that today. And if you, if you, if you, if you do the hard search and you feel like you're guilty, there's no condemnation. God is loving you right now. He's just tapping you on the shoulder like I want you to lean in. Maybe you feel like you don't know how to. Pray about it. Ask God to help you love your neighbor, love your brother and sister in Christ better, right? Ask him to help you to do it in a way that glorifies him. Let him lead you in it by his Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to even give you the one, two, three, four step. Lean into Jesus Christ. Look at what Jesus has done in your life what he's done to you and allow that to work through you. Amen. You know, we, if you're watching this sermon online, when it, when it airs, it's going to air on the 17th on Sunday, January 17th, 2021. And January 18th is MLK day today that I'm recording. This is actually his birthday, I believe. And we are going to be, we usually are in a parade, but we're not going to be doing a parade this year. But we're not meeting in person. And I would normally preach a sermon specific, um, you know, um, around gathering some of the truths of um, what we saw in the life of Dr. Martin Luther King to edify and point you to Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to implant it in this sermon and um, in this message. Um, and it's easy to do. Um, if you've been around me long enough, then you know that Dr. Martin Luther King is, is one of my heroes. Um, when we think about suffering that we go through, Dr. Martin Luther King lived in an ocean of suffering, right? And he, uh, a couple of years ago, I was at Morehouse College, and, and most people don't know this, but Morehouse has, I think about 30,000 plus artifacts from Dr. Martin Luther King. 
and I was able to sit and, um, and, and look at some of these artifacts. And my respect and esteem for Dr. Martin Luther King went to a whole nother level. And not because I saw something that was um, like, oh, amazing. It was because it was so unamazing. Like he was, he was such an ordinary just person. Um, and, and God did tremendous things in his life. Made him stand under, under boiling hot oppression and stand for right and good and ultimately give his life for it, right? But um, when I was there, a lot of stuff was happening on this trip. I mean, I got to meet, um, you know, C.T. Vivian, Reverend C.T. Vivian, who just passed in 2020, along with John Lewis, who I've been blessed to meet with face-to-face -face also. I can't believe it that I was allowed, you know, even in the room, but um, um, also one of the Arkansas Nine, I forget his name right now, was there, um, and plenty of people who have, um, who had proximity with Dr. Martin Luther King. And as they talked about him, it, it, just some of the realities that had missed me were, were hit me in the head. A couple of things that caught me were this. Number one, they said that they believe he got approximately 10 death threats a day. Um, and they were real. They weren't play death threats, right? We know, we know that. FBI was on his back listening to everything he said, right? Um, they talked about his financial struggles. He wasn't rich at all, right? Um, the ridicule he got. One of the letters I saw when his artifacts was from Martin, Doctor, was from uh, Malcolm X, excuse me, Malcolm X or whatever, and, and, and you could tell there was respect between Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King, but nevertheless, Malcolm X, you know, he was, he was, he was coming at Martin like, hey, brother, like, you know, all that peace stuff is cool, but I'm, I got these cats ready to get down and handle business was more of the nature of it. And I just thought about, man, it must have been hard trying to hold this line of, of peace, peace in the middle of that and, um, and, 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 and being ridiculed by, you know, other people you esteem. But he had some of the things, too, were his grades. They were, they were regular. He, he had some of the anxious habits that, you know, just regular people have or whatever, right? He, he, um, he had all these pieces of paper and stuff that he would rip off of envelopes and and write phrases and thoughts. It's like God was talking to him and, and he was trying to capture the words anxiously all the time. It's like, you know, I even got to see the um, the uh, the actual um, speech that he had, um, you know, that he, you know, when he did the I Have a Dream speech or whatever in 1963 that was, he, um, he had a different speech written and it was more economical in, na in nature but i saw the actual paper that he typed out and that blew my mind he only gave the i have a dream speech because when he walked to the stage somebody said hey martin tell him about that dream and then he went off his head and said what he had to say right but i look at all of this stuff right and i said man this guy he 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 was being led by the holy spirit He's a regular person. And the gospel had impacted him with this love for his neighbor um, in a tremendous way that we talk about all these years later. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King in the middle of suffering, he actually wrote the philosophy and practice for nonviolence. It's not that he created it. 
but he saw it exemplified other places. And it's obvious when you read these things how they were biblically informed, right? I think one of the tragedies with Dr. Martin Luther King, and I think that he would say this is a tragedy if he could say it, right, is we often forget. We talk about his speeches, but we leave out his sermons. You know, on the trip I had to Morehouse, we, the, the EVAC, um, if you look up evacmovement.com when you get a chance to, but it's the young boys that I, I, I get to work with. They're considered at risk, but we call them at hope. They're a brilliant bunch of, bunch of fellas or whatever. And I do that with teacher um, Amy Donofrio. And we've been able to be in some tremendous spaces from the White House. And we found ourselves on this particular trip at Morehouse, but then we also, we were at um, Dr. Martin Luther King's church because they were receiving a pastor torture award uh, ward from uh, from some civil rights leaders. But as I sat in the church waiting for the ceremony to begin, I listened to Dr. Martin Luther King's um, sermons playing over the intercom. And I was just in awe. And it just blew my mind because he was preaching. Like he was a preacher, for real, for real, right? And, um, and then the next day after we left that ceremony, I was sitting in, at Morehouse and I was in a in a in like a, a conference only probably like 20 people there or whatever and it was an intimate conference and they were just talking about martin luther king and morehouse has a tremendous um celebration of martin luther king and in, in almost all the spaces in the footprint of the campus where you're like wow you you you, you get it but i thought to myself it is a tragedy to forget how much of what he did and what he said was led by the gospel and I don't think he edited it out. I think that in history, we've edited it out because his preaching was overt concerning Jesus. And, um, and I actually said that in the middle of the conference, I raised my hand and I was scared because I'm in there with civil rights leaders and I felt like I was gonna get rebuked, but it was like grieving my heart. And, and, and to my surprise, the lady who was leading um, the talk, she actually agreed with me and she said, you're, you're right. And um, she said, yeah, we do need to magnify his preaching and his teaching a lot more. Um, and, and so anyway, long story short, to my point, um, you see, I, I can ramble about him, but like the, we, we're talking about suffering being a portion of, of, of Christians and how the enemy roars and he tries to break community apart and pull us away from unity with Christ Jesus and then unity with our brothers and sisters and the roar of the enemy is suffering. And Dr. Martin Luther King, he actually wrote the, um, the philosophy and practices for civil nonviolence, but they called it civil disobedience, right? And I just wanna read something to you, um, that what they said about civil disobedience. It says, it allows people to meet and build solidarity with each other and provides an opportunity to form affinity groups, right? So they were coming together as a community and they were unifying in this belief and in this ideology, which is biblically rooted in the idea that they stand strong in the midst of suffering, but they stand together, that they're stronger, right? And having agreement about it. Let me just read some of the principles really quick. First principle that Dr. Martin Luther King wrote was nonviolence is resistance to evil and oppression. It is a human way to fight. Second, it does not seek to defeat or humiliate the opponent, but to win his, her friendship and understanding. Third, the nonviolent method is an attack on the forces of evil. 
rather than against persons doing the evil. It seeks to defeat the evil and not the persons doing the evil and injustice. Fourth, it is the willingness to accept suffering without retaliation. Sixth, the believer in the, the believer in nonviolence has a deep faith in the future and the forces in the universe are seen to be on the side of justice. I think many of us who are Christians were able to understand the language here and what his um, what his um, what is rooted and what encourages the coloring of his speech. He is talking about standing in the midst of suffering from a biblical standpoint, right? Hating the sin, not hating the enemy. There's a way to actually war against the work of the enemy and yet still actually love the person that's perpetuating it. It's one of the reasons one of the reasons I, I, I esteem him so much because I see the hand of God in his life. I see him standing strong in community while the, while the lions roar. It's turned up around him in a way that I personally have never experienced and don't know anybody that actually has, right? So it serves as a, a beautiful example. Let me move on to verse 10. It says, in the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So we look up at resist him, stand firm in the faith in verse nine. And then we jumped into verse 10. It tells you that um, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So let's, let's, let's hit this real quick. First of all, the God of all grace. God will give you grace. So that imperative in verse 9 to stand firm is not about you using your own power or mustering up yourself to be strong. It is actually telling you to turn your attention and your posture to submitting to God and trusting God. This is where in the word and prayer and these things are so functional and so um, imperative and so relevant to our walk with God and also us holding in community because the work is not you doing it but it's that you lean into the grace of God and trust that he will finish the work that he started with you it says the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ you didn't save yourself so don't start saving yourself now God is doing his thing through you, right? He's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He's called you to follow, to trust him by faith. Doesn't make sense to anybody to love your enemy. It doesn't make sense that you would stand firm in the middle of suffering. It doesn't make sense that you would have faith in something beyond death. But God is doing something. It says he has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And so it says, after you have suffered for a little while, note this, right? For a little while. So first he does, he's called you to his eternal glory. And then it says, and after you have suffered for a little while, because he wants you to not forget that this suffering is just a small snapshot of what he's doing, right? It says this life is going to be 
like a breath, like a mist, like a split second. It seems long while we're in it, but in comparison to eternity, it doesn't even register. So it's like you're suffering. And this is meant to encourage you. It's just for a little while because he has an eternal plan. And then it says, will himself, not you, God himself will restore you and he will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Even the enemy's roaring and his attacks against you, against the community of believers, against the people of God, against the gospel itself, against the validity of Jesus Christ, all of these attacks right here or whatever, God will take them and use them for his glory. He's telling you to endure through suffering, lock arms with your brothers and sisters because they are suffering around the world also, but his promise is that he himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. You see, our self-righteous, our depraved self-savior complex often deceives us into undertaking the foolish endeavor of attempting to be a, a stronghold, a strong door against sin and the attacks of the and, and, and the roaring of the lion, right? Condemnation and deception of the enemy easily overcomes our strength. It sets in and begins to try to torture us and roar at us and begin to pull us away, right? And we posture ourselves to hold the door against the enemy. When God has sent Jesus, Jesus is the door. And he is the strong door. And he is the firm door. So we stand behind the door. We ourselves are not the door against the enemy. We can't save ourselves. He's our savior. Right? Don't try to be the door in the framework holding the enemy back. Don't return to slavery again, thinking you can save yourself, that you could be good enough, that your works can compensate. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. The only worthy sacrifice. That's why we call him word. That's why we sing worthy is the lamb, the lamb who was slain. John says, look, behold, he's coming. The one who takes away the sins of the world. Nobody is worthy of such a phrase being said about them but Jesus. He wipes our sins away in Christ alone. Not because you're good. Not because you think you're cute. Not because of anything. I don't care how much money you give away. I don't care how many people you feed. I don't care about none of that stuff. It all falls short. It all falls short. We're not going to show up to, to the throne and come with our resume of awesome things we have done. It's not, going, it's not going to work. We show up and we, our faith is in Jesus Christ. Right? God, you, 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 you put all our sins on him on the cross. He paid our debt. My faith is in that the debt was paid. That all my sins were paid and wiped away. In that we made clean because of Jesus. This is ultimately the truth. But in the meantime, on our way to that eternal glory, another thing that we have faith in is that God does the sanctifying work. That as this scripture says in verse 10 of 1 Peter 5, that, that he himself will restore and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Don't let the enemy trip you up with condemnation, telling you you're not good enough. Here's the news. You never were good enough. I'm not good enough. 
We are not here because we meet the mark. Jesus Christ meets the mark. So that is what we relish in. That's what we feast on and feed on and are encouraged in. That is what we get hype about. If there's anything we're going to boast and scream about, it's going to be the work of Jesus. And we get to do that every day. And if the enemy trips you up because you slipped up or you did something you weren't supposed to do, the word of God says God's mercy is made new every single day. Your sin does not run deeper than the well of God's mercy for your life. Dip in it. Go back to holding on to Jesus. What does it take to do this? It takes a contrite heart, right? A contrite heart produces humility. Contrite, by definition, is a feeling or, ex or expressing remorse, penitence. A contrite heart makes us small before God. It makes us take our arrogant, loud, quick-talking, self-righteous mouths and mute them and come before the Lord quietly. It's like Peter himself. God told him, he said, Peter, you're going to fall. He said, y'all, I'll never, I'll never fall. I'll never turn my back on you, Lord, ever. Nah, homie, I'll cut ears off for you. I'll do whatever. I'm a soldier. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times by the time the rooster crows. And the Bible tells us that when they said, yo, when they was about to kill Jesus, put him on the cross, they looked at Peter and said, yo, ain't you with him? Don't you know ain't that your man? Peter's like, no, nah, I don't know him. What are you talking about? The third time he denied him, he looked over and said, Jesus, look right at him. If you can only imagine that stare. And then the rooster crowed. What was so beautiful about it, though, is that Jesus didn't stare at him and say, you ain't mine no more. I don't know you either. That wasn't, it, it would have made sense for Jesus to go, you denied me and I'm through with you and I'm going to crush you and I'm done with you. But the mercy, that was God sanctifying Peter. Because on the other side of the cross, not that Peter never probably struggled with pride again, but you get a Peter that has a contrite heart. He's been humbled because he's like, I'm not what I thought I was. I'm not as much of a ride-or-die soldier as I actually thought I was. And being a ride-or-die soldier, by the way, doesn't look like you being pompous and arrogant and self-sufficient and thinking you have it together. It looks like having that contrite, broken heart. It looks like that when you sin, which you will, while you have this flesh on you that lusts for its own thing and wars against God, Having a contrite heart looks like being humble enough to come before God and going, God, I need you. Not only do you need God, you need your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why the text says, yo, they all suffer now here. We get so prideful and cute. We in church trying to do our awesome Christian thing and make everybody believe it. Let me tell you something. I need you. I need you to encourage me. With all of this stuff happened with race stuff, I'm a black man in America. I lead a multicultural church. I need you. I need you to encourage me. I need us to have real conversations about race. So when the enemy's trying to tell me, look at how white people roll, that I don't fall for that. But I'm like, that's how evil rolls. Because I know white brothers and sisters in Christ that love me and love Jesus for real. 
I know black brothers and sisters that do diversity in their life and they ain't suckers and unaware of what's going on in all of this racial division. They woke and they on it. But the love of God is bigger than all of that and informs their action in their advocacy, right? It doesn't drag them along. The gospel informs it. The gospel informs their nonviolent action. It informs their civil discourse. It informs, they, they are recipients of forgiveness and they haven't forgot. Like the word tells us, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, then you understand the idea of being forgiven. Therefore, you overwhelm others with forgiveness. If you know that you don't deserve mercy, but you have received mercy, you think Jesus was going around, you, you think Peter was running around trying to cut people's throat for slipping? For slipping? After he slips so royally, he's the poster boy for it. But then he experienced mercy when Jesus resurrects and comes up out of the tomb. When he sees Peter, he said, my man, you understand? I'm improvising. He said specifically, but you never know. But all I'm saying is this right here. Jesus embraced him. He himself restored Peter. He made Peter strong firm and steadfast fulfilling his promise when he's told Peter, he said yo your name bro you the rock my g my god listen love god with all your heart love your neighbor as yourself do not be nonchalant about your brothers and sisters in christ because they need you we in a hard, hard season. The church has suffered. It has suffered violence and been attacked since the beginning of time. And it still stands. And it's not going to crumble now. Right? The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. But don't you fall asleep on the calling you have on your life. And do not be deceived. The calling is for you to love God with all your heart. And you can't love God without relishing Jesus, without tasting Jesus. It's what everything that we have that is good flows out of. Our forgiveness, our love, our patience, all of these things in 1 Corinthians 13 that embody what love is by definition from the throne room of God is in Jesus Christ. So I'm not telling you to go act up. I'm going to go act better to straighten up. I'm telling you to lean and trust and put your faith in Jesus for the outpouring of love that builds community. It's Pastor J. Harris, the Ville Church. I love all of y'all. That's 1 Peter 5. We work through verses 8. And then 11 says, To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Which is the exclamation point on the whole entire thing. Who has the power? He has the power, right? He has the power, so he does it to you. He restores you, he makes you, he, he does it to you, and then he does it through you. You understand? My God, it's delicious. Anyway, I'm out. I love y'all, man. Y'all have an amazing weekend, and uh, salute. Pray that you have an amazing, um, you know, MLK Day, for real. Stop for a minute and, and, uh, and, and just relish the things that God has uh, blessed us with through Dr. Martin Luther King. And, uh, and, and if you're unaware, whatever, take the time, watch the documentary with your family and stuff, whatever, all right? Anyway, peace.